Welcome to the New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm AJ Kirstead, your host. And second second week of the show, I'm very excited to have a uh, kind of the other side of my life join me on the, the radio station. Um, my full-time job is over at the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law, where I've worked for over 11 years now, and one of the people that I've been honored to work with all this time is Buzz Schur, who I'm very happy to have joined me. He's His his history is done... He's, his career's covered a lot of different fields, from criminal law, um, international criminal law, which is a program that the law school has, and civil rights, which we're really going to focus on privacy, uh, civil rights and privacy in the latter half of the episode. But thanks for joining me today. Delight to be here. Always willing to help out. So I want to start off with your... You, you have a big personality, Buzz. That's, that's a very polite way of saying this. <laughs> I'm shy and retiring, I think. Yes, exactly. So so I, I was really fascinated to hear uh, when you were talking to some students recently during the law school's admitted student day about how that's the opposite of uh, how you were when you were younger. You were, you were very reserved. So I'm very curious, what led you to want to even get into the field of law? Um, well, I actually... Uh, you're right. I was very, very shy. Um, I had polio when I was a little kid, and that uh, really uh, sent me inward, for lack of a better way of putting it. And I was shy all the way through high school, all the way through college. Uh, I graduated from college. I didn't, you know, I was a child of the 70s. I graduated the 60s, really. I graduated from college in 74, but, you know, the first half of the 70s was really part of the 60s. Um, and uh I, I graduated from college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I, I worked as a commercial organic farmer for a while. I worked, uh, I picked apples with Jamaican uh, migrant workers in Southern Vermont. Uh, I ran a historic farm museum in far Western Massachusetts. Uh, and, you know, I really wanted to be a historian, Interesting. get my PhD in history because I was a colonial American history major and um, but I was smart uh, in a practical way and I figured out that to be a historian until I wrote the history book that would make me millions of dollars for that which actually might take a little while um, I'd have to teach for a living and there was no way in hell I was going to teach for a living stand up in front of people and talk because I was way 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 too shy so um you know, I was also interested uh, in environmental issues. I was very uh, committed politically to environmental issues and morally. So I said, you know, I can be a lawyer. I can be a one-on-one -on -one lawyer. I don't need. To, I can be a transactional lawyer. I can be an administrative lawyer. I don't have to talk in front of people. Yeah, that's something court. a lot of people don't consider in the field of law. They always think of law and order. You got the prosecutor. You got the yeah. defense attorney. I mean. It, there's there's a lot of industries that having a JD is tremendously useful or required. Yep, yeah. um, and you know, probably the majority of lawyers never show up in court yeah. or show up in court for you know one hearing. They do they write contracts, they do transactions, they advise their clients, they write wills, uh, they create trusts. You know, they do real estate transactions. You know, it, corporate lawyers uh, rarely show up in court. They have a separate department for uh, the litigators. You might be in trouble if they end Right. Yeah, well, you know, litigation is when things went bad. Yeah. You know, that's what litigation is. 
you're already in trouble if you're litigating a contract you had with another company uh, because that means it fell apart. Somebody didn't write a good contract or somebody violated the contract. So I, you know, I knew I could be a lawyer without having to stand up, I thought, in front of people and talk for a living. So I went to uh, then the premier, uh, I, I then I did a year working as a paralegal in a big, uh, you know, Wall Street law firm, uh, which was very interesting and convinced me I didn't want to be involved in corporate law. Uh, so I went to the top uh, environmental law school in the country at the time, and still one of the top ones, uh, Vermont Law School, intending to be an environmental lawyer. Um, I was still very, very shy in law school, consistent with uh, my past. Uh, when I was ever, this is a true story. I tell my students this story, they don't believe it um, because I'm less shy now. Um, <laughs> And I said, I said, you know, whenever I was called in in a large called on in a large class, like over 20 people was a large class to me, really over 15 people. Even though I had done all the reading, I knew the I always knew the answer to the question the professor was asking. You know, I was the top of my class in law school for three years. I would always say when called on in a large class, I'm sorry, I haven't done the reading just so I wouldn't have to answer the question. So shyness uh, and fear of speaking, public speaking continued throughout law school. I took a course called administrative procedure in law school. My first semester of my second year, law school is a three-year program, which is one of the, the core courses for being an environmental lawyer uh, because all everything is dealt with in administrative hearings and administrative process. Government agencies, committees. Exactly. God, was it a boring class. <laughs> it was and what was sad about it, it was taught by my favorite teacher, and it was just an insanely boring class. And I, um, I'm not going to be an environmental lawyer because I'm not going to do this on a daily basis for a living. It just take me out back and shoot me now. So I shifted over. I said, all right, I'll be, you know, my other political interest was um, uh, representing poor people who don't have, who have very limited, historically very limited access to the, to the uh, legal system. You know, they're getting evicted. They're getting their heat shut off. They're getting denied Social Security benefits. I mean, you can just go on and on how uh, uh, people don't, how poor people have very limited access to the legal system and, and really gets kind of screwed by the legal system on a regular basis, to use the formal legal term. And um, so I, the rest of my, my three remaining semesters at law school, I took a bunch of courses designed to do that. I, I, I did a clinical program, uh, did a lot of uh, uh, work uh, fighting the Social Security Administration. So I was really ready to, I was really, I loved it. I loved the work. I was really ready to be a civil legal services lawyer. The year I graduated from college, Ronald Reagan was sworn into office. One of his campaign planks had been to uh, defund all the civil legal services programs in the country because they had sued him so much when he was governor of California. He wasn't completely successful but all the bad timing for me, all the jobs dried up. So I was well yeah. prepared to do nothing. As, as a, two, as a uh, 2010 undergrad uh, <laughs> graduation year, I, I, I understand. <laughs> Same thing. Same exact thing. And um, so there I was. 
my wife was pregnant. Um, uh, we both took, she was, had a job working as a public defender in New Hampshire. So we moved to New Hampshire uh, and I was, uh, our daughter was born and I was a stay at home dad kind of looking for, looking for a job, but you know, I didn't really want to, you know, I, I, I was, I was on the law review. I was number one in my class in law school. So I could get interviews at all the big law firms in New Hampshire, but I just had no interest in working there. So I never interviewed well at all. Uh, and then I, the, the public defender program, which was still relatively young, it was still only about four or five years old, uh, was looking to uh, open an office in Keene. Uh, they didn't have an office in Keene. They had offices in Manchester, Concord, and Exeter, or Stratum, really. Uh, and we're starting one in Laconia. But otherwise, they, they didn't have an office in Keene, and they needed one to handle cases out there. You talk about an area that's isolated and wouldn't have access to legal services otherwise. Uh, Keene's beautiful. I went to got my undergrad at Franklin Pierce. I love it out there. But there's nothing when you leave the city limits. Oh, very much so. It's very rural, which didn't bother me because I, you know, I, I grew up in far western Massachusetts. I went to law school in Vermont. So, um, and I like I love representing the rural poor. Uh, so I got an interview with the then director of the program uh, because, you know, we had a talk at one of the program parties, I think over Christmas, we had a talk at the Christmas party for the entire New Hampshire public defender program at the director's house, which encompassed uh, 13 lawyers, uh, putting aside the director. So it was a very small program. By contrast, it's now got like over 130 lawyers. Oh, wow. Um, so, so we had a talk, he said, you know, just cause my wife brought me to the party and what, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm looking for the job, taking care of the kid. You know, I, said, oh, I might have something for you. I set up, you know, call my assistant and we'll set up a nurse. So I didn't interview we, we talked for three hours. I, you know, I had never taken two of the three core courses to be a criminal defense lawyer, criminal procedure, uh, and trial advocacy, uh, and I did really horribly in the third course, um, uh, evidence. It was the only grade I got below uh, a B plus. Um, so I was as unqualified a person to be a public defender. Plus, I, I didn't want to try cases. I didn't exactly. want to stand up Once in front again. of strangers and try cases. They reared its ugly head again. But it was a job. Uh, my wife was making, as a public defender, $13,500. This was in 1981, 1982, early 1982. Um, and so we needed money. So I took the job with the time we were living in uh, Ware, North Ware. Um, and uh, I commuted to Keene every day on Route 9. Whew, that's uh, a drive. Four. Then we moved to new boston i commuted a different route through you know greenville and you know just all this other small hit peterborough and then hit, took 101 to uh to keen so i was commuting at least an hour each way and in the winter it was you know it was a nightmare uh but there i was trying cases and the short to shorten this a little bit 13 years later, 
I then got the job at the law school as a law professor, but it was a great, I loved every second of the 13 years. And I could not have paid a therapist more enough money to do what forcing myself to speak in public and learn how to speak in public in front of judges and juries in order to help my client. I mean, that was my motivation. That was more important for me to help my client than to the fear of embarrassing me myself. Um, and I ended up, you know, so I just held my breath for three to five years and tried cases. I tried like 30 or 40 cases in my first four or five years as a public defender, which was a lot of cases because the prosecutors out in Keene, he said, oh, we got these. It was me and another guy. Both of us had never practiced law before. I said, oh, wow. we got this fresh meat coming in here. <laughs> you know, So let's just, let's give them bad plea offers and we'll go to trial on everything and we'll win all our cases. It turned out not to be the case. We both, both Paul Schweitzer, the lawyer I, I, I was out there with and I, he still practices in Keene. We ended up trying a ton of cases of winning most of them um because we worked our butts off and we were better prepared and we investigated cases better um and um so i love being a public defender about five years into being a public defender um at least metaphorically speaking i woke up one day and said you know i'm not pretending to be a trial lawyer I am a trial lawyer and I love it. It's great. And it was, that's what, very long-winded story, but that's what got me to a place where I could manage well my shyness and fear of public speaking. And I was a very good trial lawyer. I, you know, I won you know, about two thirds of the cases I tried uh, in front of a jury. Um, and, um, I still have nerves every time I do a court appearance. I do them occasionally on pro bono cases. And I'm still nervous before every class I teach at the law school. All right, I'm gonna uh, take a, we're going to take a break right here with, with that little cliffhanger there. I want to touch upon a little bit more on your uh, work as a professor. And, I mean, your career is public service. I, I view education as definitely being in that realm. So we're going to dive deeper into that. You're listening to the New England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and NHTalkRadio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kierstead. If you want to support the show, go to theneweenglandtake.com. We have a Patreon set up if you want to independently support Sports show or advertise, definitely check that out there. With the podcast feed is also posted, and you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Our handle is New England Take. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the New England Take and WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm AJ Kirsted, host of the New England Take, and we're we're joined today by Professor Buzz Schur of the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law, and we just had a great conversation about his backstory, being a public defender, overcoming shyness, and uh, really learning to love the realm of public service and. Uh, influencing people that are really helping people that can't help themselves in the realm of law and then making sure there's the next generation of public public service attorneys because I'd imagine a lot of students don't necessarily think of being a public defender or working in public interest upon 
just entering law school. I mean, there's the money is not there. Yeah, that's true. I mean, even when my wife and I were both working as public defenders, uh, we made a total of uh, of twenty seven thousand um, dollars, which those were 1980s dollars, but still, that's not a lot. <laughs> not a lot. Right. Um, so, you know, moving to the law school was, uh, and, and stumbling into that job, the job just opened up. I happened to be working at the, as the deputy appellate defender, which was then housed at the law school. Uh, and so I had interaction with some students and I had done a lot of training for um, uh, the public defender program as I became a more senior lawyer. Um, and I enjoyed it immensely, but I never really thought about being a law professor. You know, remember I went to law school, so I didn't have to teach. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but there the job was, and it was in areas, it was in teaching criminal, you know, teaching evidence, teaching, running the trial advocacy program, and basically being a resource for students who wanted to be, uh, public defenders or public interest lawyers. And, you know, most there's two kinds, quote unquote, two kinds of people in the world. There's two <laughs> kinds of people who go to law school. Um, I mean, this is a gross simplification, but some people go to law school with the instinct uh, to uh, help, to help people. It may be helping working class people. It may be helping people on the margins. It may be helping minority populations. Um, but it, you know, it may be in a small rural law firm helping the community. Uh, and then the other group of people go to law school because they want to increase their earning power. You know, it's not the exclusive reason they go, but it's, it's a, it's the primary reason they go. And both are very legitimate reasons to go to law school. I, I was in the former category. You know, I was kind of a to kill a mockingbird uh, lawyer, so, so to speak. That's what I, you know, that was my in, a vision of helping. Um, uh, so, you know, the law school job I have, being a professor is the best. You know, it's just as good as being a public defender. I get to help students uh, learn how to learn well, because I'm not going to teach them all they need to know when they get out and practice. I need to teach them more than anything how to learn stuff when they get out in practice. Yeah, I mean, there's a big difference uh, between what someone who has a JD is expected to consider and be able to review and research than, than people that do other other fields. It's totally different. I couldn't imagine doing it. I mean, I've been, been there this long. Multiple people have said, why, did you go, why haven't you gone to get a JD? It's like, my brain doesn't work that way. Well, we're still working on you, AJ. <laughs> we're still working on you. But, you know, um, it, you get paid for solving hard problems, for using your expert knowledge to solve complex legal problems. And that's a very sophisticated skill. You have to have not only command of your expert knowledge and understand it, but you got to be able to, when you get in an area that's a gray area, you got to be able to investigate your the, the nuances of your expert knowledge. So you need that kind of research analytical skill, but then you got to be able to have a set of social skills to work with your client to understand the depth of the the practical problem they confront you know work with the facts so to speak as we lawyers talk and then you gotta uh, figure out all right what's the right body of law what's the right area of expert knowledge to apply to this complicated problem uh and use your judgment i mean lawyers in the end get the get paid for judgment the exercise of their judgment in gray areas 
you know, practically speaking, you don't, generally speaking, make a lot of money as a lawyer if you're good at solving easy problems. Yeah, I mean, people don't, I mean, there, there's a kind of a reason why there's a financial barrier, there's a knowledge barrier. I mean, there, there's a lot of things you need to consider as a lawyer that you wouldn't necessarily think of there's a lot of laws that maybe you don't know about that you need to work around or yep. work through in order to make things happen yeah your body of expert knowledge to start solving problems which is half of solving problems and only half uh is huge you know it's not like okay i'll just go in the book and look up the answer i mean it would you know if that's all lawyers did they wouldn't get paid what they got paid because it's not you know anybody can do that it's easy to train people to do that you know you gotta you gotta take this body of expert knowledge and this body of expert knowledge and this body of expert knowledge one of which you know really well others you're not that familiar with and any of those three or four or five different bodies of expert knowledge in them, you may find the solution to the messy little problem that your client presents to you. So it's intellectually, uh, it's, for me, it's a thrill every day to solve legal problems in the area of criminal law that I work in and trial at trial law that I work in. Um, but, but you also need, the other half is you need social skills. You know, you need to form a relationship with your client so you can mine your client for the information and you can counsel your client to make good decisions because many of the decisions that are going to be made in solving a legal problem are your client's decisions you can make recommendations but it's up to the client to make a decision and part of your job is to whether it's the quote right decision or not right and you want to you want to help them improve their decision making in a very very unfamiliar way you know in unfamiliar area like my experience was with criminal defendants who got a plea offer uh you know on a first degree assault or on a homicide case and the question was yeah, what are our chances of winning at trial? If we lose that trial, what sentence would we get? That's the one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, well, the plea offer is for X amount of years in prison. What's, you know, tell me, Buzz, my client says, so tell me, Buzz, what would you do? And my first answer to them is, particularly with jail sentences involved, is, I'm not the one going to jail. Exactly. It's your life and you got to make the decision. You know, I can give you my judgment of trials are always risky. Um, I have a good sense of who this judge is. I predict, quote unquote, that if you are convicted, even though, you know, we're going to do all we can to win, uh, if you are convicted, eh, I don't know, this plea offer, it's a close call. So, you know, part of that discussion ends up very quickly becoming, so what's your life, you know? Am I talking about a plea offer on a felony where you're due six months in jail um, and you won't lose your job and your family can survive without you for six months? You know, or am I talking about a, a, a person who uh, it gets an offer of a month in jail 
who will lose their job and their their family that depends on them will have no resources and they'll be screwed and that's just on a silly not silly but and it's on a misdemeanor a lesser offense you know deciding what to do in that circumstance whether to take a plea offer is much more dependent on the state of your life uh and your your hope for the future if you have any left depending on where you are in the criminal legal system uh it's a very complicated process using your emotional intelligence and your social skills to work with your client to help him or her become a good enough decision maker in the context of the case to make a decision that fits their life um it's uh some of the my best moments of a public defense as a public defender were when my client made a really good decision about to take a plea offer you know some of my best moments are not you know, winning case. I mean, God knows I love to win. I'm very competitive <laughs> and go to trial and win. But I tell you, some of the best moments are winning cases by getting my client to make a decision that was good for them in terms of taking a plea offer. That's what that's what moved me most deeply about being a public defender. And that, you know, that kind of, you know, just a transition that, that that's what public service is about to me. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a perfect transition to your work, working with government and lawmakers to enable these people that um, just everyone, it's not even just people in low income situations that would need a public defender. It's the general population as a whole that doesn't really have the time or expertise to know what it takes to make government change or government work in a way that supports them in their best interests. I mean, politically, yeah. we disagree on a lot of things when it comes to high-end policy, especially, I'd imagine, foreign policy and federal policy. We yeah, and I, I, of course, I'm always right, AJ. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I'm the one that's wrong. I'm, I'm aware. It's, But when it comes to make very libertarian the government should be there to help you as opposed to control you view it's something we agree on and your work in privacy especially really stands out to me as something we definitely agree on very much so you know i got into the privacy realm i mean it was always there when i was a public defender you know the fourth amendment is a privacy amendment uh the government shall not engage in unreasonable searches and seizures the fifth amendment right against self-incrimination is a privacy amendment you cannot be forced to incriminate yourself that's a statement about you know your personal thoughts are private the government can't extract them from you uh forcefully in any way um uh and you know there's certainly other kinds of privacy under under you know Roe versus Wade, uh, decisional privacy, the uh, privacy to make personal private decisions without the government interfering. Um, but uh, once I stopped being a public defender, I, I one of my expertise expertises uh, areas of expertise as a public defender was in forensic DNA evidence. I did a lot of work. I was one of the first lawyers in New Hampshire from the defense side. To yeah, your career kind of coincided with when that started blowing up. Very much so. Early nineties. And uh, after that, after I started to law school, I got a, 
I, I started working with a, a philosopher at, at Dartmouth and a geneticist at Dartmouth, and the three of us put together a, a program to train undergraduate faculty from around the country in two-week hits during the summer, either in Hanover or in Washington, D.C., on genetics, law, and ethics. So I expanded my you know, criminal ju justice privacy focus much beyond that to more broadly genetic privacy. Uh, which is a huge area and ever expanding. I mean, it's all over the place now. Yeah, privacy in terms of 23andMe or Ancestry.com, in terms of gene genetic genealogical websites. Um, there, and your you know, literal privacy is everywhere because you're using yeah, your fingerprint on everything. You're breathing you're on shedding everything. Shedding your DNA <laughs> as you make your way through your daily public life. Uh, do, do you retain any privacy when you go out and can the police just follow you around and, and collect your DNA when you spit on the sidewalk or drop a cigarette butt on the sidewalk? So that really expanded my interest in privacy. And then uh, in the early part of the 21st century, uh, I, I joined the uh, ACLU of New Hampshire and pretty shortly after that became a member of the National uh board of directors of the aclu i was on that board for six and a half years and i was the president of the new hampshire aclu for about six years um and the aclu is very very focused among many other things on privacy issues so so that kind of got me going even more once i stopped being on the national board and 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 being the president of the new hampshire aclu i started started working in the legislature uh, cooperating with the ACLU in writing privacy legislation. And, uh, um, you know, the kind of the, uh, as well as other legislation, criminal justice reform legislation, I wrote the, uh, the comprehensive bail reform that was passed uh, three or four years ago. Um, I've done a lot of work in other areas of criminal justice reform. Uh, one of the, and I'd imagine lawmakers, especially on the state level, really value input from people with JDs and attorneys because unlike on the federal level where a lot of them have a JD or are lawyers, well, the state level people aren't. Yeah, and even more, uh, you know, at the federal level, Congress people have a staff of, depending on the congressperson and their, their status, they have a staff of, you know, five to 10 to 15 people, depending. Uh, who, who are JDs, who have master's degrees in public policy or PhDs. Um, and, you know, and they they do much of the writing of legislation uh, that their congresspeople uh, and, and congressmen, you know, can call somebody up and say, hey, you know, call me up and say, hey, Buzz, what about, you know, what, what about this area? You know, what, what should we do in this area? Give me some recommendations. And then, then uh, you know, a professor could work with their staff to write something. But at the, the New Hampshire level, they don't know. None of them have any staff. You know, they get paid 100 bucks a year um, and they do yeoman work uh, in the legislature. Um, so very often they're very receptive to help in writing legislation and sometimes they'll reach out to me on criminal justice reform sometimes i'll reach out to them with an idea i have so i'll tell you a story i uh which kind of captures this i'd been working with a very conservative uh uh new hampshire legislature on some privacy some privacy aspects of bills that he was sponsoring uh former representative neil kirk 
from the Ware area. And he was very conservative, uh, particularly fiscally conservative. But he was a libertarian in terms of privacy. He's a privacy nut, just like me. So we started working together on stuff. Uh, and uh, I remember one Friday afternoon, we talked about a bunch of bills he was working on. And I suggested, suggested some changes. And he says, all right, I got one more thing. And he opens his, I remember, he opens his right-hand drawer and pulls out this piece of paper and says, I've been trying to get a constitutional amendment on privacy passed in New Hampshire for the last 10 or 15 years. And I've never got it through even one house of the legislature. To get a constitutional amendment passed in New Hampshire, you need to get a three-fifths vote supporting it in the House of Representatives, three-fifths in the state Senate. It then goes on the state ballot, the next ballot, statewide ballot, and you need two-thirds of the voting public, the people who vote on it. And very then hard. It very hard. Yeah. <laughs> Essentially. Then it becomes a constitutional amendment. So he said, so I want you to just rewrite this and make it so we can get it passed. Um, so I did. I wrote it. It you know, I ended up saying... Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. See, I never can quite remember it, but uh, uh, it said uh, the right to be the right to be free of governmental interference on your personal or private information is natural, essential, and inherent. Right? There is no mention prior to this, um, you know, the writing of this amendment. Uh, when I wrote it, there's no mention of privacy at all in either the New Hampshire Constitution or the federal Constitution, the U.S. Constitution. So it goes in front of the uh, House of Representatives. It gets three-fifths vote plus one. So it sneaks by in the House of Representatives. You know, and I testified in front of the relevant uh, committee. Uh, then it goes to the Senate, uh, and it gets exactly three-fifths vote. <laughs> no more. It, it couldn't lose one more vote. Um uh, Interestingly, in the Senate, one Democrat voted for it and all the Republicans voted for it. Wow. Um, so it goes on the ballot in the November 2018 election. Uh, hopefully, AJ, you voted for it. I think I sure you would. Did. You would have liked the sound of it. So <laughs> It gets 81% of the voting public. And it is now a New Hampshire's latest constitutional amendment. And it's a pri information privacy amendment. Very powerful thing that we did. Um, the, the, the backstory, the rest of the story is better than anything in many ways. December 31st of 2018, the amendment was the subject of a Jeopardy question. <laughs> you made it. That means yeah. you made it, right? Right. You can either be in a textbook or you're on Jeopardy, either one. Well, you know, I ask I do surveys of my colleague, you know, when I got giving talks on genetic privacy or other privacy things, I said, so what's a more significant achievement, writing a constitutional amendment or being doing what you did be the subject of a Jeopardy question? It runs about two-thirds two -thirds to one-third Jeopardy in favor of the Jeopardy being the more significant. But that, you know, I continue to do criminal justice reform. We've got a, a facial recognition bill that just made it through the House of Representatives and now it moves on to the Senate. Uh, we continue to work sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully on, on privacy legislation and for that matter, criminal justice reform. 
No, I just want to briefly t- just stick on the privacy amendment as we got like eight min- eight minutes left. So it's what's really fascinating to me about the privacy amendment amendment is how short it is. An individual's right to live free from government intrusion, private or personal information is natural, essential, and inherent. That that could not be more to the point. It's it um, reminds me of the bill the Bill of Rights where it's just this is what it means. Uh, it leaves, but it still leaves room for people to interpret over time yep. what exactly that means. I mean, at the moment, the first thing people think of is social media. They think of their email. They think of their phone calls. But in another ten to twenty years, we can't even fathom what sort of right. ways. I mean, you're going to get the, the Elon uh, Musk t- chip in the back of your head here coming up. So well, you know, I've been, I've been vaccinated. I've got, I'm fully vaccinated. You got, you got the Bill Gates chip. I, I, yeah, I may well have the Bill Gates chip in me already. Well, you know, it's an interesting point you bring, bring up because uh, uh, it's hard to write good legislation. Uh, and it's even harder to write legislation that is a constitutional amendment that's going to get voted on. Uh, because, you know, being able to do that, uh, you, you got to decide what to make clear and what to leave to be determined by the court system. You know, what counts as information? You know, is information just count as written stuff? Or is facial recognition, you know, the, the points that uh, a facial recognition technology extracts from a picture, they extract you know, data points from a picture uh, and, you know, basically, uh, you know, uh, they create a frame around the picture and log in what those data, what that data tells you. You know, there's an argument, certainly, that facial recognition technology is based on information. Now, is your face, as it's represented in public, private or personal? You know, as that, a photographer, it, it depends. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, the amendment only applies to the government's intrusion. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question that uh, whether or not the facial recognition statute that we've drafted and is making its way to the state Senate gets passed. That's an interesting question under uh, Part 1, Article 2B. That's the privacy amendment, constitutional amendment. Um, So and, you know, there's all sorts of things. And it was written not to nail down every possible problem, as you put it. It was written to be the statement of a core principle, a foundational principle that will be useful going forward in circumstances we're not even imagining. Um, And uh, Have there been any ways since it's gone through that have surprised you how it's been utilized? Not yet. It's still early. Lawyers are just kind of remembering it's still there. I mean, you know, in New Hampshire, we have uh, the New Hampshire equivalent of the Fourth Amendment. It's called Part One, Article 19, which basically is like the Fourth Amendment. But uh, and and so we've tried to squeeze 21st century information technology as acquired by the government into how the Fourth Amendment has been interpreted for the last 200 years. And it's really, it's gotten, particularly with 21st century information technology, it's gotten, the Fourth Amendment has gotten really, really clunky. But people are used to dealing with it in the context of the Fourth Amendment. So they're just getting started using the 
part one, article two B, the information privacy amendment. But uh, uh, it will, uh, it's my revenge on uh, the government. Uh, even after I die, my, you know, I will have an influence. So it's, it's, it, I can't, I have to, can't overstate how satisfying it was to be a part of the process of getting that, writing it and getting it passed. Have you seen any other states kind of pick up uh, based off, pick up uh, similar legislation based off of this? Not yet. There's some states that had kind of privacy legislation, uh, constitutional amendments, but not as explicit as this one and not as simple as this one. Uh, It's hard federally and in the state level. It's really hard to get privacy, any amendment passed and any constitutional amendment passed and you know uh, the the uh, information technology companies which dominate our life um you know they have a lot of money to pay pay lobbyists um so that's a factor you know it's e- it's easier to get privacy legislation a statute written that targets a very particular area like facial recognition, you got a better chance of getting the statute passed and picking off privacy protections at the the statute level rather than at the constitutional level. And that's what much of the wave of privacy legislation over the last 10, 15 years has happened at the statutory level rather than at the constitutional amendment level. But New Hampshire's a leader. I mean, New Hampshire's already always been deeply focused on privacy. There is a deep, deeply etched libertarian strain in New Hampshire. And so, you know, we were able to capitalize on that to get the constitutional amendment passed. Give me the two minute elevator speech for your program at the law school. Ah, uh, crime has become more and more international, you know, and you need to, uh, you know, prosecutors and defense lawyers and people who work in government agencies need to understand transnational crime, cybercrime, human trafficking, international white collar crime, you know, piracy and terrorism. Those are all transnational crime. And, and we have the only uh, master's uh, program, an LLM program in the United States uh, on transnational crime. And it's offered online, completely asynchronously online. And it's the only criminal justice master's program that any law school offers in the United States. So it's it's a cutting edge program in the area of transnational crime, wonderful for police officers, people who work in government agencies, prosecutors, defense lawyers. Definitely check that out, law.unh.edu. You can learn more about the University of New Hampshire Franklin Pierce School of Law. Uh, the Franklin Pierce School of Law is integrated with the the, the uh, University of New Hampshire just a few years ago, so people don't necessarily realize there's been a law school in Central Concord for the last 40 years now. Um, so please definitely check that out. Thank you so much, Buzz, for joining me today. This the second episode. I feel like the, the, it was a perfect way to kind of start going into the realm of public policy and things like that. Well, maybe we can do this again later uh, and we can just fight instead of get along. We'll get into politics. Don't you worry. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Buzz. You're listening Thank to you, New you. England Take on WKXL 1450 AM, 103.9 FM and NHTalkRadio.com. We'll be back in a minute to wrap up.
Thanks for listening to the New England Take on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. I'm your host, AJ Kirstead. Thank you again to Professor Buzz Schur, the University of New Hampshire, Franklin Pierce School of Law, for joining me for the show today. You can learn about the law programs over at New Hampshire's law school, law.unh.edu. The New England Take is looking for advertisers to support this program in order to keep it on the air and to expand. I'd love to be able to get up to two to three days a week with new content for you guys and fill up this evening drive slot. Right now we broadcast Fridays from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. And I'd love to see that be Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So if you want to help me out, email the New England Take at gmail.com or message me on New England Take on Facebook or Twitter. You can support the show independently also by going to the New England Take.com where we have a Patreon set up. Individuals can support the show by subscribing on a monthly basis, and I'll be expanding perks as more people sign up. So get in now and things will only get better from here, I promise. Thank you for listening. The New England Take on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM, and nhtalkradio.com. See you next Friday.